All right. Welcome to Why Is This Good? A podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine. I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. Well, it's my turn. I picked a story by George Saunders called Sea Oak, and it's a weird one. The story should have been called Show Your Cock. Wow. <laughs> I'm hearing some insane <laughs> words between this episode and the last one out of your mouth. What? Fiction doesn't have to be a story. <laughs> this one should have been called. Wow. John's <laughs> on something. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to read a section here. From the payphone, I call home to see if they need anything from the food so quick. Just come home, Min says stiffly. Just come straight home. What is it, I say? Come home, she says. Maybe someone's found the body. I imagine Bernie naked, Bernie chopped in two, Bernie posed on a bus bench. I hope and pray that something only mildly bad's been done to her, something we can live with. At home, the door's wide open. Min and Jade are sitting very still on the couch, babies in their laps, staring at the rocking chair. And in the rocking chair is Bernie, Bernie's body. Same perm, same glasses, same blue dress we buried her in. What's it doing here? Who could be so cruel? And what are we supposed to do with it? Then she turns her head and looks at me. Sit the fuck down, she says. In life, she never swore. I sit. Min squeezes and releases my hand, squeezes and releases, squeezes and releases. You, mister, Bernie says to me, are going to start showing your cock. You'll show it and show it. You go up to a lady. If she wants to see it, if she'll pay to see it, I'll make a thumbprint on the forehead. You see the thumbprint, you ask. I'll try to get you five a day at 20 bucks a pop. So a hundred bucks a day, 700 a week, and that's cash. So no taxes, no withholding. See, that's the beauty of it. She's got dirt in her hair and dirt in her teeth and her hair is a mess and her tongue, when it darts out to lick her lips, is black. You, Jade, she says, tomorrow you start work. Anderson labels, fifth and Rivera. Dress up when you go, wear something nice, show a little leg and don't chomp your gum. Ask for Len. At the end of the month, we take money you made and the cock money and get a new place somewhere safe. That's part of phase one. You men, you babysit. Plus you quit smoking. Plus you learn how to cook. No more food out of cans. We got to eat right to look our best because I'm getting me so many lovers. Maybe you kids don't know this, but I died a freaking virgin. No babies, no lovers. Nothing went in, nothing came out. Ha ha, dry as a bone, completely wasted this pretty little thing God gave me between my legs. Well, I'm going to have lovers now you fucks. (laughs) Like in the movies, big shoulders and all, and a summer house and nice trips, and in the morning in my room, a big vase of flowers. And I'm going to get my nipples hard, standing in the breeze from the ocean, eating shrimp from a cup, you sons of bitches, while my lover watches me from the veranda, his big shoulders shining, all hard for me. That's one damn thing I will guarantee you, kids. Ha ha, you think I'm joking? I ain't freaking joking. I never got nothing. My life was shit. I never even went up in a freaking plane. But that was that life, and this is this life, my new life. Cover me up now with a blanket. I need my beauty rest. Tell anyone I'm here. You all die. Plus they die. Whoever you tell, they die. I kill them with my mind. I can do that. I am very freaking strong now. I got powers. So no visitors. I don't exactly look my best. You got it. You all got it. We nod. I go for a blanket. Her hands and feet are shaking and she's grinding her teeth and one falls out. Put it over me, you fuck. All the way over, she screams, and I put it over her. We sneak off with the babies and whisper in the kitchen. It looks like her, says Min. It is her, I say. It is and it ain't, says Jade. We better do what she says, Min says. No shit, Jade says. All night she sits in the rocker under the blanket, shaking and swearing. All night we sit in Min's bed, fully dressed, holding hands. See how strong I am? She shouts around midnight and there's a cracking sound and when I go out, the door has been torn off the microwave but she's still sitting in the chair (laughs) this this story 
blew my mind. This and is great. I don't know where I found it or why I picked it. It's always the same where I'm scrambling to find something and I pull up like a list and it's like the best free fiction online and I click, click, click. And uh, when I started reading this one, it was quick and it opens with this brother, the nephew, who <laughs> has a very bizarre job at like a aviation themed strip club for men. And he's just like getting hit on by these middle-aged women and it's disgusting. He just, He's not like fully on board with it. Part of it feels weird to him too. But this is like a lower middle-class family like <laughs> or a poor family and they're like scrambling. He has to do it for this money and some of the money seems good and some of it seems bad. Anyway, their aunt dies. And the story goes from being like, I don't know, a story about them scraping by and then their favorite aunt dying to this. And when I read <laughs> this scene, it accomplished everything that it needed to accomplish in the sense that we were experiencing what the characters are experiencing. Like Bernie died a saint and she comes back swearing like a sailor and she shouldn't come back first of all. But the difference between who she was then and now and, and like how she's talking and how she's kind of taking control and what she's demanding of these kids all of a sudden. And they're, you know, they're probably like in their twenties, but they don't have their act together. And Bernie was like their North star, but now she's directing them very, very, very differently, like with fear. <laughs> and it's really extreme and I just love that whole section where she's talking she's just ranting she's got this plan that she's hatched in the crypt and she comes back and it's fully formed and she's like this is what we're doing and when she swears I'm like dying <laughs> I think it also kind of hints at like the resolution. Cause I don't know about you, but after I realized what this story was going to be about, like a real zombie, I had no clue it was going to be a zombie story. By the end, I was like, where is this go? Like, where could this possibly go? That it's going to end on an emotional note. And what it does is revisit the sentiments in that section. I just read this idea of she feels like she was cheated out of life. And by all accounts, she was a good person and she did good to others. And she was loved and respected and missed. But, you know, she's been given this bizarre opportunity to reflect and she's now saying, I did it wrong. I didn't get what I wanted. I died without these things that everyone else had that I realized now I could have had, but maybe I needed to take them kind of by force. And that is like such a universal sentiment. Whether or not your goal was to get your nipples hard with the sea breeze, <laughs> the end is talking about all the regrets that you have and then kind of badgering yourself about what you think you should have done differently to get it to turn out that way. That's like the unique spin on it. Not just like I died and I didn't have kids. It's like I died, but I didn't try this and this and this and this and this to get what I wanted. It's almost like she's lamenting having rolled over in life. Yeah, this is this story is made me think of uh, the metamorphosis Kafka because you know, Gregor Samsa turning into a giant bug at the beginning of the story is kind of, it's a metaphor for how he feels about his life, you know, and then what happens to him and the way his family tries to take care of him and then just winds up locking him in a room, letting him die is kind of a metaphor for how they treat him or how they're going to treat him because of what he's become because of, you know, his work and his life. And this is similar to that, where when she returns to them, the way she treats them, the way they interact with her and what she kind of insists they do it's kind of a metaphor for their feelings about her life now that she's gone and their own lives right it's kind of like an impetus and an impulse to react to that instead of it just making it a like a rumination or like thought processes you know you could easily see this story written where the character just thinks about his aunt and says well she never did anything and now she's dead so i need to do something instead you bring her back on stage and you have her harangue them and you have the, her like be that kind of impulse 
impulse personified Mm -hmm. so that she's the direct cause of them like him trying to change his life a little bit later and also you know when so when he thinks back on her and what his question about her would be you know it's not merely like this introspection it's like about a concrete event a concrete like undead creature sitting in her in his house anyway so that connection between those two this made me think of that yeah that's a really good example i don't want to give my takeaway yet but that kind of <laughs> made me like that gave me one in both this zombie story and the metamorph story neither of these writers set out to write about a bug or a zombie right they set yeah. out to write about the, like this sentiment and sometimes we think it happens in the opposite way but this is obviously one of the most memorable ways to communicate those takeaways that they want you to, to have i'll always remember bernie That's as right. you know the undead like spewing at this family while her ear falls off that's such a like he could have picked any way to tell this story maybe in a eulogy or whatever like you said from a different perspective and it would not have been as in your face memorable if there hadn't been a guy that turns into a bug you remember it for the plot but the plot is memorable and then you remember a takeaway versus yeah. like oh the takeaway has to be so memorable that you remember the story there's certainly stories like that but this is a way to like shoehorn yourself into someone's psyche <laughs> That's right. And I'm glad you read that one section where she does that long harangue because that really represents that could be internal, you know, but the fact that she's saying all that stuff out loud, it's coming from a creature that used to be her makes that that much stronger, that much, you know, kind of encapsulates everything. I think too, like uh, in that moment, I wasn't thinking to myself, oh, I know what he's about to do now. I wasn't then reading the rest of the story, hoping that, you know, Bernie gets what she wants and I'm oh, a second chance. It was more like, this is bizarre. No clue where this is going. Like problems are compounding, right? Bernie's getting more and more uh, unwieldy and um, you just like don't know how it's going to end. It wasn't until the ending that he revisits that monologue of hers and then you realize that that was the takeaway. So that's another thing I think to think about is this story was enjoyable for me because Bernie was such a character, but also because the premise was so bizarre and uh, I was kind of along for the ride you know and then that's why i say it like shoehorns the message in because had it been a more subdued telling i might have checked out so i read all the way and then i reflected as i should and i was like wow this is really good <laughs> like he it was all there yeah the ending was one of those a lot of times you know fictional endings have this kind of list you're left with okay i have to think about this like what does this all mean but here he talks about having a recurring dream where bernie comes back again he says every time it's the same thing some people get everything and i got nothing she says why why did that happen every time i say i don't know and i don't he's kind of like puts it in your face there at the end. It's like, this is, yeah, this is what's important. Yeah. And uh, that's like a on the nose, like you said, in your face, here's the point that's presented in a way that's still like authentic for this character. Our main character here that we're following, I mean, he's a male stripper. We're, we're made to believe he's like, if not a total meathead, at least like not the brightest of the bunch. He's like this haphazard male figurehead of the family, but he's not anyone to look toward for help. So when he's saying that to Bernie and his dreams right like i don't know i don't like that's true for him but it's also the takeaway yeah he didn't have to say something profound for you to get it right he didn't have to like break character and be like i don't know it's like every time there's like a janitor in a movie and they say something profound it's like wow never expected it from a janitor never expected (laughs) it from a blue collar worker and here it's like his response is in keeping with what we expect out of him right he's not this profound guy he's not the sage (laughs) 
No. And we're not looking to him for anything kind of life altering in terms of advice, but that him saying, I don't know, like it's on the nose as a reader, but it's authentic for him too. He's an interesting character. I was trying to figure this story out before I got to the Bernie stuff and it just like sucked me in. I was trying to figure (laughs) out who is this character? You know, it's told in the first person and yet the whole thing has this kind of comic, serious, satirical tone to it, you know, where it's funny. You want to laugh at it, but it's kind of this like remove to it, you know, kind of like an academic indifference. It's like anthropological or something um, a bit emotionless, you know, like there's this part where uh, it says uh, after Bernie dies and they, they're going to the funeral and they meet with um, their mother or his mother and um, her new boyfriend. And they're all at the restaurant and uh, the Freddie Ma's boyfriend steps up and says he didn't know her very long, but she was an awful nice lady and left behind a lot of love, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. And that's, um, that's how he's reporting to us what happened there. You know, so you're like, he's not like, it's a little bit funny. And like, even um, at the very beginning, when he walks in the, the house, his uh, sister and cousin, I think. Yeah. Min's my sister. Jade's our cousin. And they're watching TV. They're watching How My Child Died Violently, hosted by Matt Merton. <laughs> Six foot five blonde is always giving the parents shoulder rubs and telling them they've been sainted by pain. Today's show features a 10-year-old who killed a five-year-old for refusing to join his gang. The 10-year-old strangled the five-year-old with a jump rope, filled his mouth with baseball cards and locked himself in the bathroom and wouldn't come out until his parents agreed to take him to fun time zone where he confessed, then dove screaming into a mesh cage full of plastic balls. You know, this is like, uh, this is like satire, satiric tones to this, you know, like, I don't know. Right. He, he's just reporting it. He's not commenting on it in a way. Right. The right, fact right. that the fact that he's reporting that, you know, when whenever a, a narrative takes a moment to describe something that's not immediate to the character, you wonder why is it describing this thing and the right. tone of this and the feeling of this makes it feel like he's doing some sort of satirical commentary but it's first person so you wonder who is this guy um and then there's these little moments she died right he comes home and she's dead in the chair and he says i sit down beside bernie i think i'm so sorry i'm sorry i wasn't here when it happened and sorry you never had any fun in your life and sorry i wasn't rich enough to move you somewhere safe i remember when she was young and wore pink stretch pants and made us paper chains out of drug town receipts while singing froggy went according all her life she worked hard she never hurt anybody and now this he's describing a really sharp emotion in that moment you know i'm right. so sorry i'm so sorry but it's such a difference like he's reporting the emotion in the same way he was reporting the tv show like a few paragraphs before right it still has that kind of academic satirical remove to it so the question is just like how i i was having trouble trying to figure this character out <laughs> because of all that right it works though it's really fascinating how well it works well i think with like first person especially it's the quickest way to establish a character is to see what they ramble about. That's right. Like, yeah. Not just who they are, but their voice too. I, that was what was strongest, I think, in this piece was his voice. And you're like instantly reminded of it. Even the scene that I'm reading where it's like Bernie, it's Bernie's dialogue. But like the overall cast of characters have this sarcasm about them and they're all in shit situations, but they're all kind of aware of it. I don't know. When I when I was reading it, I was like, this is George Saunders showing you how good he is at coming up with a guy that feels pretty real 
the way he's talking, it feels like a real stream of consciousness almost, or how he would tell you his day went, you know? Yeah. Well, he's focusing on little details, right? Yeah. 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 But he, he's that kind of guy that, you know, would come home and like find his sisters or is it his cousins? I don't even know. One's a sister, one's a cousin. <laughs> okay. Watching like this shit TV show and him being like, oh yeah, this is what's this, you know? I don't know. I didn't, I didn't like look into any of that other than to think like, wow, this is what this guy pays attention to. He's pretty funny. I'd listen to him talk for a while, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But before I realized that this was first person, now that you just reminded me, I was thinking about how something overall in the story felt familiar to the Stephen King story that I picked a while back. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I forget what that one was called, but it was Herman where the woke wo- is still alive. Wow. You're so good at this. So <laughs> the the poor woman and her friend hit the lotto or something. They won a modest amount of money in a lottery. A modest amount, but they're like about to literally upend their lives and they're like in the car together driving away and then they like crash and die. But what was familiar to me about it was their financial situation where they are on the ladder. Like this family... I don't know if I'm going to be able to say this correctly, but I feel like when you write regular fiction, and when I say regular, I mean, you're not thinking too hard about who you're writing about. When you just say like, oh, I have an idea for a character and I'm just going to like write it. You're probably thinking like middle class, right? And you're probably thinking white. And I know if I'm me and I have like a faceless character, that's who I would have to box them into if I was forced to describe them. If I haven't given my character much thought, that's the default is my situation. A white woman in her 30s who's middle class. And and I say this with a with some caution, but I think when you are imagining characters in a very, 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 very different situation from you, but maybe close enough that you're able to write it, you know, I don't mean write a different race in a different country in a different time period and expect it to be authentic, but you know, if I was to imagine a family in my same neighborhood, in my same time period who made a lot less money and I knew where they lived, you're forced to personify them more. You're forced to develop them more. They become realer characters when you are actively telling yourself as the writer that they're different from you. And I feel like that was what was familiar about this piece and the Stephen King piece was that these people who are down on their luck financially, and we have to get that they come from a different social class, the way that you quickly establish that is much defter writing than your average writing. And it's not just describing what they look like physically, but it's in their dialect. It's like you said, what this character is noticing. And it doesn't have to always go down. It doesn't always have to be you imagining someone that you think is less fortunate than you, because I think that that's where you do get into trouble. But if you're forced to imagine any character other than you, like if you're forced to imagine the president of the United States, what is it like for him in the overall office in the morning making coffee? Like, you have to work a little harder to develop that character and make it believable to you, which makes it believable to the reader. And I don't know what my takeaway for this is other than, you know, don't go out of your way to write about people that you don't have any business writing about. But I think that's kind of the key to why some of these characters pop off the page. Bernie is like, in her own words, she got screwed her whole life. And um, we don't all think of ourselves that way all the time. So it's like, what kind of a character is that when you decide to write that? That's all I got to say. <laughs> I think I talked about this on one of the earliest episodes we ever did. The idea of understanding a character, you only get a little couple of details. And this is how you understand other people in life too. You fill in from your um, yourself. 
you only see somebody at the grocery store, you see them. So there's a couple of details you can kind of, but when you have to assume the kind of person they are, what they might be thinking about, you have to provide all that stuff, your, you know, your mental theory of mind, your theory of what their mind right. is like, has to take from yourself and project it onto them. A lot of stuff, a lot of like the background and like just the shape of things. And then you can hone in on little details to adjust it here and there. So like right. well, that person's obviously a jerk and I'm not a jerk. So what would a jerk think if they they were picking yeah. out uh, frozen foods in the frozen foods aisle. So the same thing happens with characters where there's a default kind of theory of what a human being is. And you have to provide the, the uh, details that will nudge it towards the character you're trying to portray. Mm -hmm. And so the more of those you can provide, the more specific you can make that character appear. And the more I can push it over here to be this kind of person, push it over here to be this kind of person, but always relying on that kind of projection of what your audience is going to provide for what a human being is. Right. This is what makes, you know, what is the default? And that's why there's so many problems in, in literature and writing about writing an, un, an underrepresented voice because our defaults right. are, are white. Like you said, they're middle class. And the marked case is always the underrepresented, you know? So if right. I want to write about a, uh, a character who's black, I have to describe them as being black. Right. Because otherwise you're making bad assumptions. Yeah. Which I, I don't like that that's necessary. I really don't like it. But, you know, until our culture is different, until our assumptions are different, I don't know how we get around it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's not, I don't want to like devolve into like that discussion. I know. Because I'm not trying to like harp on people that try to write this. I'm trying to say that I think George Saunders pulled this off, not because he thought to himself, I'm going to write a poor character, but because he thought to himself, I, you know, I have this fully imagined character yeah. who's probably different from me. And then like you end up just stretching, you end up working harder. Yeah. He's not a professor at a New England yeah. university. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And I, I think Stephen King is kind of guilty of this too, where he tries to represent all types of people in his stuff. I'm not saying he's guilty of it in the sense that like, it's a bad thing to attempt, but I think it's obvious a lot of times when he's writing people that he's trying to write a character that he hasn't written before. I don't know how to explain it. He's written so much and the characters are so different that it's like, you can tell he's making a conscious effort, which we don't all make is my point. That's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. We don't all make the conscious effort to write someone different from ourselves and I'm not saying that you should go out and write a black person because you're going to be fucking terrible at it. I guarantee it. Because if you haven't thought about it before, you probably shouldn't try it. You know, you should probably read black authors. But the point is like, could the person, yeah, have dropped out of college, but you are a professor, you know, like just imagine someone slightly different or think to yourself, who is this character really? And some writers, we encounter them all the time in our workshop, have fully developed backstories for characters. I'm one of the people that doesn't. I'm one of the lazy writers that default to myself and I'm so aware of it. So aware of it that becomes therapy on your in the workshop. Yeah, it really is. That's why we talk about writing all the time. We're like, uh, well, you did a great job. And it's like, I mean, the character, the narrator, you know, when you're like mistaking the, <laughs> the writer for the character, that's when you know, like they haven't done a whole lot to separate themselves. Anyway, I think George Saunders intentionally or not, that was a result of this. That's why this character seems so fully fledged. He's a stripper at an aviation themed 
restaurant. Like he went there. He went way out of his realm of familiarity and the characters are, are better for it and memorable, memorable, super memorable. Even if you like go out of your way and give your character a job, we don't all even like give our characters jobs. Sometimes my people don't even have faces or hair color. You know, I'm just like, I don't know. Yeah. So yeah, I digress. No, that's a great point. You know, there's some stories we could make that point for any number of stories, but obviously he makes these characters so round and so well described that it's easy to discover that point as we're reading it. Right. Uh, What else did you like about this one? The dialogue was amazing. Yeah. I love Bernie's shift too. So the section I read is her coming back from the dead and the nieces and nephews just kind of blown away that she's back from the dead, first of all, but also talking like this. So you you didn't get a sense from what I read is my point of who she was before. But we also don't often see characters that have such a dynamic change. We talk about like dynamic and static characters and, you know, your main character should be dynamic, right? They should have some kind of change as a result of the point of your story, whatever decisions are making whatever journey they go on or whatever like revelation they come to but bernie is so different we never see characters that like do a flip like this and um that's what was also like so exciting but you think about like movies and things where okay here's a bad example grease the musical when sandy decides she's gonna be a hot girl like that transition is the most exciting part of the film right anytime a character decides to become something different like you see it in superhero films all the time like the montage of them changing is exhilarating so when bernie comes back from the dead and she's completely different it's like this is so exciting we get to see this alter ego almost and that's like one of the things a lot of good writing does at least for the writer right we just talked about how we're always defaulting to ourselves but we're also defaulting sometimes to our best versions or the versions that we think we could be and that's like exciting to write and experience so i I think that was cool too yeah there's a line here min is saying i don't know how to make freaking biscuits Min Wales. You know how to read, right? Bernie shouts. You ever heard of a recipe? You ever been in the grave? It sucks so bad. You regret all the things you never did. <laughs> you little bitches are going to have a very bad time in the grave unless you get on the stick. Believe me. Turn down the thermostat. Make it cold. I like cold. Something's off with my body. I don't feel right. I turn down the thermostat. <laughs> he looks at me. Go show your cock, she shouts. <laughs> It's so weird. <laughs> I wasn't like laughing out loud when I read it to myself, but when you read it out loud, it's like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> oh, he had fun writing this. Oh, he had yeah. So much fun writing this. Yeah, for sure. Which is also a good takeaway. If you're not having fun writing it, then uh, I don't want to read it. Yeah, absolutely. Are you ready just to discuss a takeaway then? Oh, yeah. My takeaway is follows right from that is go have fun. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. John's advice <laughs> this- these days. It doesn't have to be a story, just have fun. <laughs> I have fun all the time. I write from the hours of 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. religiously. It's so fun. I don't do that anymore. I can't do that. I know. No, that that is a good takeaway. It's hard to know if you're having fun sometimes, but... Yeah, like, just bringing her back from the dead is such a ballsy move, you know? (laughs) It's like, like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. You know, like we talked about the metamorphosis thing at the... Just bring it on stage and let it it flop around. (laughs) (laughs) I was only half kidding. I think, you know, Show Your Cock is not a bad title for this because this is like, (laughs) it just puts it out there. Just... (laughs) Oh, yeah. I like how you say, just like put it on stage and let it flop around because 
<laughs> well, I mean, yeah, puns aside, it feels like what people who say that they have fun writing claim is happening, that their characters are just jumping off the page and being alive. I've never experienced that. I've never written a character that suddenly starts steering my sentences. But I think that's what people mean when they say like they came up with an idea and they went with it. Yeah. And, you know, their brain was doing the work and they were having to think hard about it, but they decided to go with it. And that's when you do have fun where you're like, oh, this could happen. And then this could, oh, this is kind of fun. Yeah, that makes sense. Because for me, writing is almost never fun. I like to have written. <laughs> yeah. It is hard. So I went into full detail of my takeaway at the very beginning there, which is that, you know, George Saunders, I don't know that he has other zombies and other works of his, but if you want to make like your takeaway super memorable, you can do something really insane. I'm not suggesting that you like do something like this exactly or make it like fantasy or sci-fi or have some bizarre thing, but you can do something weird at least that's memorable. Weird stuff is like really, really memorable. The sentiment here, I'm sure we could find in several other written works, right? The idea of like a wasted life or a cheated life or regretting oh, yeah. things. That's extremely common. But what's not common here is that, you know, a character might actually come back from the dead and get to articulate that, if not experience it differently. And that's why I'll remember this story. So the takeaway is that you can co-opt a feeling or a sentiment, <laughs> but if you invent the world and the characters that are memorable, like you could be the one that rises to the top here in my consciousness and probably be considered more clever for it, right? Like we're reading this and, and thinking, George Saunders, I can't believe he pulled it off. Oh my God, look at him. Good for him. This is incredible. And he might've been over here like <laughs> grasping at straws, you know, or thinking to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll just make it outlandish as hell. And then people will remember it. You know, he could be pulling one over on us. And that's what I'm suggesting you do. You can be deliberate. You don't have to hope that people recognize good writing. You can force them to recognize it this way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that ties in with my takeaway too. Yeah. Go there with it. Put your right. ideas on, on stage. Show your cock. <laughs> That's right. Very good. Thanks, guys. There's a show called Puppetry of the Penis. <laughs> I don't know exactly how it works, but it's like people on stage doing puppetry with their penises. Oh my God. Yeah. Ew. Well, it's disgusting. I'll look it up. <laughs> it's been like 10 or 12 years since I even looked it up. I believe you. <laughs> I go see that show every weekend. <laughs> yeah. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our monthly newsletter at our website, NaplesWritersWorkshop.com. And for daily writing tips, industry news, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop.